uh, things back to normal this week and next week when Jeff's back with us, as I'm sure you will as well. But thank you for enduring, uh, Brandon and I, as we cover things. And uh, I'm obviously just thankful for the privilege to uh, speak to you again this morning uh, as a continuation of, of last week. And uh, I've, I've mentioned this before, but the fact that I'm even up standing up here uh, and not fumbling with myself is really a miracle because uh, I'm a math teacher. I don't, I mean, I, I work with kids and that's the extent of it. And uh, the fact that I had the opportunity to share the truth of God's word this morning is a great privilege and responsibility. Uh, so I'm thankful for that. So let's go ahead and turn to James. If you were here with us last week, then you kind of know where we are heading, and we're going to pick up from that same spot, because uh, I didn't want to go real long last week, and I didn't think I could fit all of this into one week, so we're continuing here in James 2. So let's do a quick review of last week's verses. So we're going to discuss again. Now, oh, in your handout on there, there are already some blanks filled in, because it's the same handout as last week, but we only got about halfway through that, and so some of those blanks are filled in. If you weren't here last week, if you were here last week and you have your sheet, great. You guys can figure that out. Genuine faith bears the fruit of good works. That's where we started last week. Now, again, as a review in James, we're looking at all these different practical ways. James says genuine faith. If you say you have faith in God, then there should be fruit in your life. And these are some examples of this growing fruit that you should have as part of your life, part of being a true believer. So James 1 says, don't just hear don't just be a hearer of God's Word, right? but do. Don't just be a hearer of God's Word, but be a doer. James 2, and we started looking at this last week, don't just say, don't just say you have faith. There should be actions and works and deeds that follow that. Don't just say, do. And we gave this, this I think is on your sheet. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. So then we came to James 2, and I'm going to reread the couple verses we looked at last week. So James 2, I think those are the ones that are on the screen. So we'll start with verse 14, James 2, 14. Are you with me? You ready? You with me? Are we are? Are we here? All right. Okay. All right. 14. What good is it, my brothers? Again, James is writing to believers. If someone says, just some, someone says he has faith, but has no works, no fruit, nothing to back that up, can that faith save him? And we looked at that least, we said, James is saying, no, that's not the kind of faith that's going to save him if there's nothing that proves that. If a brother or sister gives us this example, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, basic necessities of life, clothing and food, right? And then one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but we don't do anything about it. Without giving, giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Those are the verses that we looked at last week. And as, as I was, was re, kind of rereading through those verses, I was sitting there thinking, what would, it, what would it be like to have been Mary, the mother of Jesus, who took care of actual Jesus? You ever stopped and thought about that? So Jesus was fully God, but he was fully human, fully man. And he was a baby. He had poopy diapers. That's weird to think about. I'm, I'm assuming he fell and skinned his knee. I don't know. He grew up like a normal kid because even his own brothers didn't accept what he claimed in the beginning. So there was not something so abnormal in his childhood that he seemed like a normal boy. And Mary had the opportunity to take care of the Messiah. She knew this. Can you imagine that? 
when he was tired, maybe a little fussy, was hungry, Mary got to take care of the physical Jesus. Can you picture that? I mean, we don't think about that a lot. That's kind of crazy. And yet we have the opportunity each day to do something similar. Why? Because Jesus said, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. So we actually have opportunity, not like Mary in that same exact way, but we have opportunity each. And this is what we looked at last week. This isn't today. This is what we looked at last week is one of the ways to show that your faith is real is by meeting the needs of other people. And we have that opportunity all the time. So here we are in verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, when we hear the word dead, we think once alive, now dead. Well, this dead here is a dead that was never alive, a faith that never existed in this person. So also a faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, we gave last week, and verse 17 is the first of the three, we gave three verses in this passage that are kind of like the statement or a summary of what this whole section is talking about, all right? So here, faith by itself with no works, that's not true, genuine faith. This is what James is telling you. It's dead, all right? Now we pick up in verse 18. But someone will say, you, we're, we're just going to read through this whole thing, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to look at each verse, all right? But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then we have two examples that James is going to give us here. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. There's another summary statement right there in verse 24. Verse 25, and in the same way, here's another example, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And that's that third summary statement there of that verse. So let's look at verse 18. Now, there, again, there's a lot of questions. We went over kind of some questions last week when we started. Like, here's some questions. As we read through this, there's some phrases in here that kind of make us scratch our head and be thinking, what does, that, what does that mean? justified by works, completed by works. This, that sounds like a different religion, but not what we believe. All right, so let's kind of evaluate. We talked a little bit about that last week. We'll mention it again this week. So verse 18, let's read verse 18 again. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So some guy says, and he's not saying this is a believer, some person, someone will say, I have faith and you have works. What's the big deal? Basically, the idea is some guy says, all right, well, maybe you have faith and I got my works and, the, and your faith is fine and my works are good and both are separate. These are two different alternatives. Here's two different options. You know, both are good. That's fine. And James's response, well, you show me your faith apart from your works. But James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. That's verse 18. So what is James saying? 
There is no way that you cannot have works if your faith is real. Let's keep working our way through this. What does this mean? How else am I going to demonstrate to others that my faith is real? Okay, verse 19. Move it along. Verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, as I read, I mean, I've read this verse over and over and over again, and I, I keep getting this impression that almost as James is, are any of you sarcastic in here? You have like a sarcastic tendency? All right, this was like our family's spiritual gift, I think. And so I had to work on that a little bit, but I almost sense like sarcasm in this in, with James. You believe, as he's talking, as he's writing this letter, you, you believe that God is one? Good job. You do well. Even the demons believe that. So that's kind of how I'm reading this. And the demons believe, and they have enough sense to shudder. Okay, but where do we get this phrase, you believe that God is one? I think this is important. So we're going to go back to Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and we see this same phrase. I think this will be on the screen here. Uh, you believe that God is one. So Deuteronomy 6, do we have that verse? Maybe not. Okay, so if you want to turn to that, it's fine. Otherwise, I'm just going to read it. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 starts. Hear, O Israel, this, th these Jewish people would have known this. This would be a passage of Scripture that they would know very well, all right? So James says, you believe that God is one. He's actually referring back to this verse, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I'm reading out of Deuteronomy, same phrasing. But then let's read the rest of that. Are you with me? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. I'm still reading Deuteronomy. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. What's the point of that? Why am I reading that? So we go to this same phrase. You believe that God is one, you do well. That's great. In fact, the Jewish orthodoxy, they were, there's no question in their mind whether there's a one true God. That was always part of their theology, God is one. So what was the problem? What was their difficulty? Well, these verses that followed. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. This was a very known passage. They, their, their belief always centered around the fact that there was one true God, but that's not where they struggled. They struggled with living this out. We read those verses again. When you walk throughout your house, in your conduct, in your every day-to-day -day life. What was the whole point? Yes, you believe that God is one, but what does your life look like? How are you behaving? What is your conduct? What are the, if we use the word works, that are displaying that? So then we come to this part, even the demons believe and have enough sense to shudder. So what about these demons? This is on your sheet there. MacArthur gives us a great, a great quote. So I'm just going to read that. You've got it on your sheet in front of you. MacArthur puts it this way, as far as factual doctrine is concerned, demons are monotheists. Of all whom know and believe there is one true God. They also are very much aware that Scripture is God's word, that Jesus Christ is God's Son, that salvation is by grace alone through faith, that Jesus died, was buried, and raised to atone for the sins of the world, and that he ascended to heaven and is now seated at his Father's right hand. They know quite well that there is a literal hell and a literal heaven. They doubtless have a clearer knowledge of the millennium and its related truths than even the most devoted Bible scholar. But all of that orthodox knowledge cannot save them. 
They know the truth about Christ, God, Christ, and the Spirit, but hate the truth and them. The demons know this truth, and they have enough sense to shudder, even though they hate it. I was even thinking through this this week. We have the truth. I mean, even the demons, like, they know this. They hate it. They reject, but they know the truth. We know the truth, and sometimes we go through our day and like, eh, that's great. That's nice. When we understand the truth and what God has done for us, is if our faith is genuine, then we should respond in a way that is a bunch of lines in the songs we just sang this morning. Even the waves and winds know his name. What a great line, all right? Even they recognize who God is and who Jesus is. We should have, when our faith is genuine, this should drive us to good works, to love, to be devoted to a God who loved us, to a Jesus who gave his life for us. James says, if this is real, then mark it down. You will have works that follow. That was verse 19, verse 20. Do you want to be shown you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Again, we have a similar theme here. So two words, I just want to emphasize in this just so we understand, foolish and useless. All right, so foolish carries this idea of empty or defective. This kind of is identifying any person who's opposed to the truth that saving faith produces works of righteousness. Now, I'm just, I've said this word works quite a few times, and I don't want to be confusing. Is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone? Yes. yes. Is works part of salvation? No. no. All right, we've established, we spent time on that last week. All right, I'm going to allude to that here in just a little bit. All right, we're not saying works is part of salvation. Absolutely not. But if your faith is genuine, will you have fruit in your life that shows that? Yes. So a foolish person here is someone who rejects that idea and says, no, I can have faith or I believe God, and I can live my life any way that I want to. It doesn't really matter. James is calling your faith into question. And then we have this word useless. It actually means barren, which is interesting because we're going to talk about Abraham here in just a second. So barren meaning fruitlessness or lack of productivity. So this, this word barren, again, we look at these next verses we're going to read in just a minute. We're talking about Abraham who was barren for decades, right? He was an old man. And he finally has a son. And God then promises this son and says that your seed is going to be great in the earth and number as many as the sands of the sea. Right? If you know the story of Abraham and Isaac. But then what is Abraham called to do? God speaks to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your one and only beloved son, who the promise is fulfilled to go through, Isaac. But I want you to take him and I want you to sacrifice him and give him up for me and show that you love me more than this son I've given you. So what does Abraham do? He does exactly that. In obedience, and he's coming up the mountain. Abraham's old. Isaac is enough age. So they get to the top of the mountain, and here supposed to build an altar and sacrifice his only son. That sounds crazy to us today. And here in obedience, Abraham takes up his only son, Isaac, Abraham's probably to the age, he probably doesn't have a whole lot of strength as far as being able to lift up his son, depending on how high this altar is that he builds. So Isaac had to most likely be a willing participant. That is kind of amazing, but it's really very representative of the willing 
sacrificial lamb that Jesus will be when, in years, years later. And here Abraham offers his son Isaac to the point where he is ready to carry through with this and sacrifice his only son. Why would he do that? Knowing that this promise has been fulfilled, knowing that God had made this promise and now he's going to kill his only son, why would he do that? Because of his faith. So let's, let's read. I'm going to Hebrews now. Hebrews 11, the faith chapter. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Here's this promise made. Did Abraham have faith in God? Yes. And he's showing this by his work that he had faith in God to the point where he's going to kill his only son, even though that he knew this promise had to go through Isaac. Why? The last verse, verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Because Abram had this tremendous faith. Even if he was killed, consumed by fire, Abraham had the faith say, He's God. He can do whatever he wants. I'm going to be obedient. And even if he is consumed by fire and killed on an altar, God can raise him from the dead. That's an amazing faith. This is some serious action on genuine faith. So let's read verses 21. So we're back in James. So let's read our verses again about Abraham. So verses 21 to 23. Here we go. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works. Okay, I'm going to review. Remember, we talked about it sounds as though James is justified by works doesn't sound right. Okay, we looked at there's two different meanings, the Greek word dikeo, two different meanings for the word justified. It sounds as though Paul and James are at great odds with each other. We talked about this last week. They're not. Paul being justified, being declared righteous at the point of salvation. James, justified by works to be shown to be righteous, to prove my faith, a demonstration of my faith, which is not salvation, follows salvation, which is part of sanctification. Are you all with me? We good? So here we come, this justified by works. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So let's look, we kind of looked at that phrase, uh, justified by works, but what about this idea, completed by his works? What do we mean? So this idea of completed has the idea of to doing mature, okay, or complete. Uh, it's not that this was like finished off his salvation. We've made that clear. It's not finished. It wasn't complete. His salvation was not completed because he did this work, all right? It means it was brought to fullness on the fruit that it was going to bear. What do I mean? Okay, so imagine with me a fruit tree that we know is a fruit tree that we assume is going to bear fruit, all right? We'll make that assumption. And all of a sudden, a bloom comes, all right, and something starts growing, and we see something starts growing, 
and then we see this small, I don't actually know how apples, actually, how they develop, but this apple, and all of a sudden, over, over time, it's ready, and we have this nice, lush, red, delicious apple, whatever kind of apple you like. No? Okay, so some, okay, whatever color you like, red, delicious apple, all right? It has been completed to its fullness. Abraham's faith was completed or shown to be real by the works of his obedience in sacrificing his son Isaac. And thankfully God spared his son and provided another animal. So when was this scripture spoken? We read the, the part, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. They hear in verse 23. So when was that scripture spoken? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15. All right, so we're going to understand a timeline here. I think these will be on here. Do I have Genesis 15? Great. So Genesis 15, starting in verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. He's kind of sulking a little bit, saying, I got nobody. I got nothing to f follow on and, and uh, be my heir. And behold, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. This is God speaking to Abraham. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And here we have it. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's the same phrase that we just read here in James chapter 2. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We see his faith in God displayed where? Genesis 15. But the story of Isaac was not until Genesis 22. What's the point? Faith came back in Genesis 15, and his faith was justified, proven, shown to be real, true in Genesis 22 when he followed through and was obedient. Does that make sense? So Abraham, Abraham had saving faith in Genesis 15, but we see the fruit of it in this example given in Genesis 22. The fruit of good works is not part of salvation, but it always follows genuine faith. So here we see this fruit of obedience. And then the very last part, it says, and then Abraham is called a friend of God. John 15 is a great chapter, and it's talking about we as believers should bear fruit, and we abide in the vine, attached to the vine, and our lives should bear fruit when we are abiding in the vine, Jesus John 15, 14 said, Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And that's exactly the, the example we give in here of Abraham. God called Abraham to do this crazy thing of giving his only son Isaac. And what does Abraham do? He obeys. And Jesus says, God says, you are my friend. No man will ever be moved to action without faith. And no man's faith is proven real until it moves him to action. 
Continuing on, and then we're going to give some application here. So what does this mean for us today? All right, let's, let's continue on, verse 24 and 25. So verse 24 gives us a kind of another summary statement. Remember, we had three, all right? Verse 17 was one. Here's the second, verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works. Again, this is not salvation. Justified means shown to be true, proven to be true by works and not by faith alone. So it's a demonstration of this faith by works. And then we go to verse 25. And here's our second example. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Again, justified meaning demonstrating or showing her genuine faith. Now, just to get a little bit of the story of Rahab, let's look at a couple of verses in Joshua 2 where we get the story of Rahab. So Joshua had taken over for Moses. They're going to go and take over Jericho. And they're spying out the lion. So these spies come, and this is where we are introduced to Rahab, the prostitute. Why did God use a prostitute? We'll get to that in just a second. So here we pick up in verse 8, Joshua 2, verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. So she's heard of all these different things related to the Israelites from Sion to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And here is her faith that we read in this very last part. For the Lord your God, what's her response? He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And here we see and give witness and testimony to Rahab's faith in the one true God. So Rahab somehow had been given faith from God. He revealed himself to her to a point where she had complete faith in God. This has already happened in her heart, and now she is acting out her faith. She is showing her faith to be real and true by protecting these spies at her own potential calamity. So here we see this Rahab, a fruit of caring for other believers even at her own risk. Now, here we have these two examples. This is what I think is amazing. As we read through James 2, this section here, we have two massive contrasting people, Abraham and Rahab. When you think of Abraham, I mean, Abraham is one of the most revered, respected men in all of Judaism, Right? who is obedient, had tremendous faith. We see that throughout his life, tremendous faith. We have Abraham who's lifted high on a pedestal, all right? Great man of God, great man of faith. And then James chooses to choose Rahab as his other option, who is a prostitute, a Canaanite, and a woman. What does that mean? I think there's several different takeaways from that. But no matter what you think you've done, God loves you and God can use you. I think that ought to give us tremendous hope. 
When I think of the failures that I have in my own life and that God still can use me, what a great privilege and opportunity that we have. James selects these two to illustrate this point of genuine faith. Both had faith, and then they both had works that justified, shown, proven that their faith was true. Abraham loved God and was shown through his obedience to God. Rahab loved God and showed that by loving others in spite of what might happen to her own self. I have an illustration that I came across, and I thought this was interesting. I think it fits here. I'm going to make application. I'm just going to read this, so follow along with me. So Frank Meyer, a Dutch-born plant explorer for the U.S. Agricultural Department, spent months collecting pear seeds from certain plants and trees while on a trip to China in 1908. By the way, I read a ton on this, um, and I kind of just consolidated it, so you'll pick up enough to know kind of what we're talking about here. A certain tree seemed to be able to grow and produce in any climate or soil, and it was a very hardy tree. The goal was to find a type of seed that could be brought back to the U.S., be grafted into the growing pear farms in Oregon and California to produce larger and better pears. Over the next few decades, different trees were planted and grafted to try to enhance these pear trees that blossom beautiful white flowers in the spring. Maybe some of you know where I'm going with this. From the 1960s to the 1990s, the calorie pear was the urban planner's gift from above. A seedling selection named Bradford was cloned by the gazillion to become the ubiquitous street tree of America's post-war suburban expansion. It exploded with white flowers when we most needed it in early spring. Its glossy green leaves shimmered uh, coolly in the summer heat, and in the fall its foliage turned crimson, maroon, and orange. That sounds beautiful, doesn't it? You guys seen these trees? There's an interesting fact I'll say at the end here about South Carolina related to these trees that I just came across on Friday, which was fascinating. But then something happened. It turned from thornless to spiky, limber to brittle, chaste to promiscuous, tame to feral. Most of all, it became invasive. I actually watched a video on this where it was just taking over a field and they just mow it down just to keep it from going crazy. It is now an ecological nightmare destined to continue its spread for decades long after those suburban tract houses have faded away. Generations yet to be born will come to know this tree and learn to hate it. It now grows like a weed that needs to be mowed down. Its invasive tendencies become wildly noticed by the late teen 1990s and by the mid-2000s it had become a weed in the district and 19 other states from Texas to New York. Botanist Michael Vincent said at the time, while the Bradford pear was introduced with the best of intentions, it now seems that a plague is truly upon us. So what is so significant about the Bradford pear? Well, since it was grafted into another tree, it became something entirely different and now doesn't bear fruit. It's called a pear tree. will have beautiful flowers and look as though it will produce pears, but it is fruitless to the point, and this is where in 2020, either 2023 or 2024, South Carolina will not allow the sale of this tree. I just came across that. You, can't buy, you won't be able to buy this tree. It's not a genuine pear tree or a fruit tree at all. In fact, the farm that I referenced in Oregon, I read about that, is completely desolate and they, it doesn't grow any pears. It used to be a very flourish and they were trying to grow it and it's just dead. It's a fake. Just because someone says that they have faith doesn't mean their faith is genuine. And James here is trying to stress this to his readers, that you say your faith is genuine, and this is the whole book of James, then these should be things that are part of your life if your faith 
is genuine, which should lead us to works of righteousness, demonstrating that our faith is genuine. So let me ask you, is your life bearing fruit? Is your faith genuine? Or are you kind of like this pear tree? Now, the, the, there's a couple places where the illustration falls apart, but are you fruitless in your life? You better check yourself to see is my faith genuine. Now, we talked about this last week. This is a process. When I read through James, when you read through James, there's no doubt things in your life you're thinking, I got to work on that. I got to work on that, right? There are th- but is there fruit in your life that points back and shows that you have genuine faith? And then when these things and the Holy Spirit allows these things that we talk about and God's word is preached and in your own daily Bible reading, God convicts you and there's areas in our life that, you know what, I need to work on that. Maybe there's something even we talked about this week, last week. This is something I need to work on. John 15 makes it clear that when we abide in the vine, our lives will bear fruit. So what are some takeaways here for us this morning as we kind of wrap up this section in James? Maybe there's someone in here today, this morning, that you may be thinking, you know what? I've been struggling for a while if my faith is genuine. Maybe I don't have faith at all. My life certainly doesn't bear fruit of a Christian. There may be someone sitting here like this morning that says, you know what? I'm not sure I'm a believer. I don't think I'm a Christian. I don't think my faith is genuine. God loves you. God died for you. Sent his only son, Jesus, to die for you. Conquered death. And this morning, you could know for certain that your faith is genuine. You put your faith and trust in Jesus alone, and then you can begin that process of sanctification. Maybe that's you this morning. You know, there are application. It doesn't matter my past sins or struggles, and we all have them. We look at even as God used Rahab, who had a horrible lifestyle, and she put her faith and trust in God. God used her in a great way. I think it gives us great hope that God can use me, that God can use each one of us in here When you surrender, we sang that song too, when we surrender and give everything up for God, He can use us in a great and mighty way. When your faith is genuine, you say, you know what? Use me, Lord, however you want to use me. God will use you if you are His child. I think it's great hope. There are often times and seasons in our life where we say, is God even using me? Am I bearing fruit? Here's the great thing. When I walk away from just this section... I know my faith is genuine. I hope you have a, a great confidence. But there are often times where I'm like, Am I, is, God, is God using me? Am I any, is my worth anything? Here's the great thing. When your faith is genuine, God promises there will be fruit in your life. Take hope. Take hope. God will use you. That should be exciting to us. And here's the thing. Spend time with God. Spend time in his word and in prayer, and God will give you more opportunities and more fruit. And sometimes we don't like that pruning time, which happens. But as a believer, we know that you will bear fruit. And then lastly here, what is it an area of growth? We, we talked about last week, we talked about this area of resources. Seeing a need and meeting a need. We talked about the two resources of time and money. Maybe th- even throughout this week, you thought of, 
This is the area where I need to give, maybe financial or of your time. Seeing a need and meeting a need. When God brings things into our life, then we want to act on them. When your faith is genuine, then you will respond in that appropriate way. You looked at this morning, maybe there's a matter of obedience. Abraham, even though this seemed crazy, I'm going to offer my only son Isaac, whose this promise is supposed to be fulfilled through, but God told me to do it, so I'm going to be, obe- be obedient. What is God asking of you? He's not going to speak in an audible voice like he did to Abraham. But the leading of the Holy Spirit that we have in our life that convicts us and points us in a certain direction and through his word, what is God asking you to do? Then show your faith to be real and be obedient. Then even as I think of Rahab, even at her own risk and peril, she was willing to help others at her own risk. But we, we, we want to protect mine and what's mine and all my stuff, right? I'm, I'm kind of afraid if I would actually help another person. Rahab had faith in God. God is going to take care of me. So even at my own risk and peril, I'm going to, and in this case, she helped out these spies. What is it in your life that you need to Maybe at your own risk, I'm going to help someone else. I think these are the examples. There could be others where you can demonstrate and show your faith, but these are the three examples that James gives us here in this passage. What is an area of growth in your life that God and the Holy Spirit are working? Be receptive to that and see great fruit in your life. Take hope, Christians. God has planted faith in your life and your life will bear fruit for him. What a great privilege. What a great responsibility. What an awesome thing We use this phrase, to rest in the finished work of Christ. What a great thing. And that is true. But it cost us nothing to become a Christian. But it costs us everything to live like one. Denying ourselves daily, giving up our own desires and needs for those of another. Why? to be fruitful for God's glory. Not to earn favor from God, but to be fruitful for God's glory. To respond in love and gratitude to a God who sent His only Son who gave everything for us. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Let's close in prayer and we'll be done here this morning. God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this section in James that that gives us some examples of what our genuine faith should look like and how that should be played out in our lives. God, even as you've convicted me of a couple things in my own life, I pray that as your word went forward, that there'd be things that we would grow, you would grow us, Along this process of sanctification, as we become more like you, we know that we fail you, but God, help us to be willing to listen and willing to be obedient to what you call us to do and to respond, see needs, and meet those needs as they are around us. Help us to be a people that is so vastly different because of the faith that we have in you so our life looks so much different. God, help us not just to say that we believe in the one true God, but help us to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. And when we do that, God, it will be so evident to a lost and dying world. They will want what we have. They will want the faith that we have. May that be true of each one of us in here this morning. 
that you would